You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air Nipe here with Always. Typical Lydia. Today's show, we're going to be doing the 1982 undisputed classic John Carpenter's The Thing. (laughs) (laughs) He's got some finger motions there, folks, to show the tendrils, like the the tentacles. Yeah, Yeah, I got got some like wiggly, wiggly bits. Wiggly bits. Wiggly bits. Speaking of wiggling... And wiggly bits, fiddly bits, wiggling dollies, uncanny apparatus. Uh, uncanny apparatus or wiggling dolly is an article I wrote with Matt Fickner for Ottawa Horror back in the day. And he had worked on the revamp, the 2010 uh, redo of the thing. And there's been so much press since then about the physical effects that were slated for that film that never made it to screen. And you know, if you remember the public outcry of how they CG'd so much of that film, although so many physical effects existed, physical effects not unlike the effects we're about to talk about. Mm. But they were yanked last minute, and there was so much existing, and there's footage of behind-the-scenes footage that would have been behind-the-scenes footage if these apparatus would have made it in. Well, Matt Fickner from Ottawa worked on that team um, and he has done the creepy puppet project since, and I don't know what, cause I haven't kept up with Matt since I interviewed him. And, uh, but yeah, if you want to hear about someone who is a puppeteer working in that genre, who had worked on these yanked physical effects from the thing remake, head on over to ottawahorror.com. But it was to this day, people lament that redo because of the lack of those physical effects, but we're going to be in hog heaven as it were when it comes to physical effects soon. We really are. Um, in a lot of ways, talking about uh, John Carpenter's the thing, the reason why I always put John Carpenter's name atop the door is to not confuse it with the Howard Hawks thing from another world, because I'm really anal about that with people. Uh, particularly since this film occupies a fantastic space, which I think a lot of people, um, can use it as a benchmark in that it is a remake, but it is a remake that so, um, became its own thing. No pun intended. <laughs> um, that it has, it has overshadowed much in the same way um Cronenberg's The Fly has. Yes. All these years later, I mean, I I lament people forgetting the originals where these films came from, particularly since both uh The Thing from Another World and The Fly are fantastic films, but the remakes are so wholly different in tone that I think that they really do become their own films. But since I am a stickler, I always like to make sure that people know that I'm talking about John Carpenter's The Thing, 
Not to be confused with Howard Hawks' the thing. You know, like when I'm talking about The Hobbit, I say, no, no, that 1970s cartoon they showed us in school. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about The Hobbit. Not the great big multinational yeah. huge hit that everyone and their dog has seen. Yeah. Ralph Bakshi would be really happy that you're mentioning the animated Hobbit. <laughs> I love the animated Hobbit. But yep. that is, you can't blame them, Wes. You can't blame people. There are people out there who probably don't know, and it's rare, but there probably are these people that exist that don't realize that Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit were books first. <laughs> right? Probably not. So there's people that don't know The Fly existed beforehand. There's people that wouldn't know The Thing existed beforehand, even though the internet tries to drive it into our minds every chance it gets. And not only that, don't forget, that The Thing from Another World was a book first so yeah who goes there yeah and which is really really enjoying some really great christmas time holiday specials right now so you can never forget where it came from west never fucking forget the internet will not let you forget but yeah the thing from another world who goes there um john carpenter's the thing john covers the thing this is a long time coming this film it, it for to horror fans to science fiction fans uh to film fans mystery fans let's put mystery in there you know we i was writing mystery. the genre genre list out here and i put mystery first it is it is a whodunit in a way and we got some noir moments mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know what i'll allow it thank you it is basically <laughs> clue in the snow <laughs> Clue in the snow, I like that. Um, this movie's so big that it almost, almost warrants a commentary track, in my opinion. But we're not going to do a commentary track. Because there's a lot of discussion points about the thing that I think are really, really important to have. In fact, we could go back to this in a couple years and do a commentary track because it is that big. Although, it's also so big that we're dry dogging it today, guys. Uh, we're not going to kid you. I'm not going to kid you. I don't know about Wes. Wes okay. Kidder. Um, but we're not liars. We didn't watch this 10 minutes ago. No, we didn't. Gang, I was sick. I still probably sound bad. Yeah, uh, Wes is just getting over cold, so he's got some Grant Mazzy radio voice oh it's getting rumbly in here folks it is getting rumbly and that's not by design um but we have seen this movie so many motherfucking times that we we don't need to see it (laughs) we could have not watched it for a year and probably had the exact same conversation although i have recently rewatched the thing of course Mm -hmm. as we had planned to watch it last week and didn't get a chance to um i watched the new version that just came out the 4k remaster Yes, I watched my dusty old DVD that I've had for probably 18 years at this point. Um, but, gang, I got an early Christmas present. A Christmas Christmas. Christmas. Uh, Chris from Bind Torture Cast is such an obsessive movie buyer that he buys multiples of a lot of things. By accident? By accident. So now I have my own copy, 4K copy, and I'm going to fucking watch it today. Yeah. Even though I've literally just watched this movie. (laughs) So be prepared for a postmortem where we come up with things that we might have, should have said during this episode. But, you know, we have seen it this many times and we talk about the thing and that's why we needed to do this for the show is because we've brought up the thing. There was a run where we brought up Alien for every goddamn episode and the thing and it was just like constant till the point that we were like we've got to do these goddamn movies because and we still haven't because i don't know here we are 
Here we are. We're doing it now. But I, you, you, I remember you bringing up the alien thing, and I was like, oh, God, is that true? Go back and listen. Oh, my God. Why do I keep bringing up alien? <laughs> we refer to alien and thing often. Yeah. These were seminal uh, films, not only for the genre, but also for uh, me personally, and the thing I know for you as oh, well. Definitely. I don't know where you stand on Alien. Oh, I'm a huge fan. I'm a huge fan. My mom was a big sci-fi fan, right? A huge sci-fi fan and a huge horror fan. My dad liked sci-fi, didn't like horror so much. So this is something that they definitely enjoyed together. Science fiction horror really is the great equalizer, I feel. My parents were the same way, especially with me. Science fiction horror, I was like a hardcore horror kid. But I loved science fiction, too, and I knew my parents preferred science fiction. So we could all get behind watching things like The Thing and Alien, Event Horizon, stuff like that. Um, So I am really excited that we can finally talk about this. And I know that I've brought up The Thing in the past when I was talking about the differences of horror in the 1980s coming out of the 1970s. Now, I've talked about um, the the, the book... uh, Dark Directions before and uh, Projected Fears as well. Um, and that is where not the first time I was introduced to the idea of Reagan era horror. Um, Reagan, you know, Ronald Reagan, uh, you know, this idea that people got oh, Ronald McReagan for Idaho abortions fans out there. Y- yes. So for you guys, um, there's that. Um, when the world kind of got behind like a, a very popular conservative might versus right comic booky like president, um, a lot of good music came out of that era. Uh, but I never bought it. I never believed it. I, I was like, that's ridiculous. And I've told this story before because anytime that anyone brought up the difference, like, you know, Toby Hooper made in 1974, they, he made Texas Chainsaw Massacre and it's pretty fucking dark, even though some people, even him will maintain that there's funny moments in it. I don't see those. Um, but two in the late 80s, that's unequivocally a comedy um, with still some fucking dark shit in it, but it's still a comedy. And people, but I was like, yeah, but look at all the serious horror that came out of the 1980s. Yes, you have Poltergeist, but there was The Entity. Yes, you had Freddy Krueger, but you had Pinhead. So on and so forth. It wasn't until I had really looked at the thing as a failure. That was the biggest marked difference that made me actually pay attention to this concept that the world no longer wanted nihilistic dark horror. And that was because John Carpenter was a guy who was at the height of his powers because he made Halloween. And you can never take that away from the guy. <laughs> yeah. He fucking made Halloween. He made one of the greatest horror movies, one of the greatest films ever made. In 1978, and at the time, it became the largest box office success for any independent film, and it maintained that record for years. So he goes on and he does something else. He makes the fog, and then the fog makes money. But in 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 the interim of that, he has all the power in the world. You're a filmmaker. You made a really profitable film, so people come to you with money and say, "What do you want to do?" Yeah, people start waiting for the next John Carpenter film, and so, not just the studios, the consumer. Exactly. So, John Carpenter, you can do anything right now. What do you want to do? I want to remake a thing from another world. Because John Carpenter, as we know, look, Howard Hawks, the thing, is in Halloween. Yeah. It's on the TV. Uh, He's a fan. He's a fan. He loves that film. 
So when you give him an opportunity, he wants to do it again. And it's not going to be a shot, a shot for shot remake. It's not going to be like the guy that, you know, made Psycho years later. Uh, cause that, that was his like project. He's like, I want to do Psycho. John Carpenter's project was, I want to do a thing from another world and call it the thing. And it's going to be so different. When you watch a thing from another world and you watch John Carpenter's thing, yes, you have uh, an Antarctic outpost. Yes, you have a large group of people who are trying to deal with a thing that is, you know, very susceptible to fire, um, seemingly uh, indestructible to everything else. I mean, the, the 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 creature is a lot more humanoid and straightforward in Howard Hawks' the thing. The uh, creatures, plural, in John Carpenter's thing is a lot more nebulous. Like, you don't even really know what this thing really looks like, what its base form could possibly be. I would just say it's a, a amorphous All bomb. I think of is this head with spider legs and someone saying, you gotta be fucking kidding me. Yeah. Because that in my mind is what it wants to look like the yeah. most like little like little uh like it's um little crustacean eyes like yeah 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 aerial eyes yeah um so there's that and so this film comes out and John Carpenter brings the same sensibilities remember this is not a person who made films that have been very different this is a dude that made Assault on Precinct 13 and he made Halloween and he made Escape from New York and he made They Live. He made all of these films in which grizzled dudes, mostly dudes, with the exception of Laurie Strode, that's like an outlier, but are presented with a dark world. Assault on Precinct 13, go back and fucking watch that movie. Yeah, That is a fucking dark fucking movie. They shoot a kid in the first fucking scene. Boom. And so he makes this movie, and it's just like all his other movies, but everyone can't stand it. They balk. And, I mean, I was surprised slash not surprised because I understood going in that that was the public conception at the time that Ebert referred to it as a barf bag movie. That's crazy. But that is pretty much, in a nutshell, what, what people were thinking of this film. So the real question is, how does this relate to how audiences change from the 1970s to the 1980s? Does it have anything to do with the Reagan era of horror? And I think that it does. And the reason for that is, is this film is so nihilistic and so dark and so dreary. I don't think it's the practical effects. Yes, they were revolutionary for their time and also very shocking for their time. But I don't think it's that. I think it's the overall tone of misery yeah. throughout the entire film. And it starts out with a with a tone of isolation and misery to a certain extent, especially coming from the um, me generation that was about to happen, where mm. people definitely wanted golden arches and cocaine 24-7 yeah. because they didn't want to deal with the real fucking world at all. Mm. But even just the idea of being an... Antarctic exploration scientist. Mm-hmm. Yikes. That's the farthest from their mind, let alone everything that happens from the first five minutes on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you, you had filmmakers like John Carpenter and Wes Craven and Toby Hooper, um, coming out of the sixties. They started making their films in the early seventies and they continued to make those films. Some of those directors were able to evolve their style. The only person that was a real fucking stalwart with the way that he makes movies is John Carpenter. And he took a massive hit when this film came out. And it, 
in Hollywood, sometimes you're young, sometimes you're old, sometimes you're hot, sometimes you're not. And you can make a fucking hit that's the biggest hit in the world, and then you can make a string of things that do ho-hum or they bomb, and you're over. Like, all of a sudden, you're struggling to make movies for the rest of your career. Look at M. Night Shyamalan. That guy had James one sort of James, almost, but he, he had M. Night Shyamalan is still working to <clears throat> win back public appraisal. That's true. Yeah, I James Wan has achieved it in certain genres. Yeah, certain genres, and he's got like a huge movie coming out yeah. in a couple of weeks. But yeah. like, um, so, and I had no idea about this. It never. As a child? Oh, same here. I had no idea that this movie was My parents were such big fans. Everybody they knew knew the thing. Everybody they knew knew the thing. And people made jokes about, like, when spraying the dog in the face with a with a water hose. Everyone made a fucking thing joke. Everybody? And, and like, everybody, like, knew the iconography of this? I thought it was as big as The Exorcist. Agreed. Agreed. That's a great example. Like, it, it was a true revelation to me that this movie did poorly. And it's always interesting about like perception versus reception of a film and john carpenter himself you know says in his interviews he can be very biting sometimes you when people ask him directly about initial responses to his films but um because he'll usually say hey you know what it's all good now it's all good now people like my movies now it's all good at the time he's on the bathroom floor with a razor blade yeah yeah because like you know you could tell that like of all the films that he made, you know, Big Trouble in Little China doesn't make a lot of money. He didn't write that script. He was just a, a director for hire. Um, but the it thi- wasn't something. I wasn't a passion project. That's exactly it. Yeah. The thing was his passion. Right? He really wanted to fucking make this movie, and you could tell he really tried his fucking ass off. And because he tried his ass off. Everything. Like, the cast is immaculate. The special effects are immaculate. The score. Obviously, it's a giant. Oh, yeah, like, everything's immaculate, and it seems that just looking generally at the end product of the film, if it was the first time I'd see it, I'd say everyone else there on set shared his passion. Agreed. And then you're faced with this reality of of like this is a fantastic movie, and it did everything right. But as John Carpenter also says in interviews, people wanted ET that year. They didn't want the thing. They wanted happy optimistic uh, it was funny because like i always remembered et as like a darker movie than it was et scared me when i was little <laughs> yeah i rewatched et a few years ago and i was like jesus like there's no bad guys in this movie even like the evil government they're all on elliot's side i don't understand like what's the narrative anyway like when they come to capture elliot and et and elliot's like put into testing i was uh, that terrified me but it might like, as well be an alien abduction at that point but like even one of the scientists goes to elliot like like, of all the people that could have found him, Elliot, we're glad it was you. Like, I was like, there's no narrative obstacles for this movie. I fucking hate Anyway. Yeah. Like, anyway, so, that, fuck E.T. because fuck that. But, like, um, and, and so that is when I started to think maybe they had a point. Maybe this idea of, of comic booky Reagan-era horror, maybe you are accurate. Because how can a movie that has made literally no mistakes fail it's a lot of the reason why the dion quintuplets because yes i'm taking this to the dion quintuplets were <laughs> such a big hit not just because it was a medical oddity that five children survived a natural childbirth at once in the wilds of corbeil northern ontario but 
at the time we were coming out of the war and people needed happy not just wanted happy not preferred happy they fucking needed it and they fucking clung on to it with both hands every day in the newspaper so as soon as you open it to any bad news or bleak news it's triggering to use a more common term everyone was having post-traumatic stress disorder whether you were in the war or not you knew somebody who was in the war so whether you were subject to the end of the 70s or the beginning of the 80s or coming out of any sort of wartime then or coming off of any sort of retaliation against the free love movement, whether that directly affected you or not, you were tired of feeling oppressed like that. Tired of feeling oppressed and um, the, the, the slogan, it's a new morning in America. Was, new morning in America. Yeah. During the Cold War. Yeah. That's what you needed. Yeah, it's a new morning in America. Don't worry. All that stuff from the, the bad times, I know that the, the promises of the 1960s, by the end of the 1960s, each one of those promises was broken. It became a nightmare. They saw their president's head blown up on fucking television. Uh, fucking fascinating. They saw some of their their strongest civil leaders assassinated um then there's a war there's riots there's, there's other wars going on like, too that yeah, people aren't talking about exactly and, you know college campuses are rioting it, the, the the riot the rioting on the college campuses is crazy the the mass the, shooters have become a thing yeah so all of these things that happen and then as as people like john carpenter and Wes craven and toby hooper were honing their craft owen polanski uh, honing their craft. All films were about you don't trust your neighbors, you don't trust the church, you don't trust the government. All of these old institutions that cocooned us for society are all lies because that is what the world was showing you. And so... It- we're sort of going through that again. I had a little conversation about that on the Super Secret Podcast Project coming out from Evan May and Brandon Crilly. I spoke with... Uh, them and myself and author Matt Moore had sat down and talked about why this like super bleak existentialist horror is happening with these like endings that don't add up or leave people hanging or just absolutely fucking depressing and start out depressing and get worse and have this feeling of like you're a tiny ant under the giant foot of the cosmos. That sort of feeling is coming back in a big way and it's very popular in film and, and TV and horror right now. And it's a lot of us going through that again. I think it has a lot more to do with the quicker news cycle because we had uh, satellite coming out around that time and news was happening a lot quicker and it's overwhelming and it's becoming overwhelming all over again. But mm-hmm. yeah, um, that was definitely the same sort of reaction that we're getting to films now, except it's kind of opposite where we get something like get out and everyone is all behind that, even though everything is bleak and terrible and wrong. And you can't trust a goddamn institution to save your life around here anymore. You can't trust other people. And you can hardly trust yourself. They were going through that then. Yes, you're absolutely right. And, um, you know, and we've seen this before, even at the beginning of the decade when, um, Again, when mass shootings became really uh, prevalent, and then a recession hit, then nine eleven happened, uh, et cetera, et cetera. War, new war started, and that's when the quote unquote torture porn subgenre of horror exploded in popularity. Now they take that sort of bleakness and they've stripped a lot of the violence out of it, and it becomes 
Um, well, with some noted exceptions, because some big horror movies this year have been exceptionally violent. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, um, it's uh, there. There doesn't seem to be um, there doesn't seem to be the same level of um, doesn't seem as seem as splattery, with the exception of things like Upgrade and Mandy, yeah. which are very splattery. It's not as splattery, but it still has that same level of hopelessness. But yeah. right now, it's, it's maybe we have better coping skills as far as hopelessness in our art. Um, where at the time when the thing came out in 82, that was the last thing people wanted at all. It was painful. Yeah. Particularly since you had, you know, all of these people, uh, again, it it is not a scene of camaraderie. It is not a scene of, of we're all in this together. Howard Hawks, the thing is a very sunny, we can do it, boys and women. There was there was a, a cast of female characters in Howard Hawks' thing. John Carpenter removes all of that, makes it a bunch of dudes, and again, they're at each other's throats. Fifteen fucking minutes into this movie, mm-hmm. and they do not recover. And it really, and and it, nobody trusts anybody. Everyone's really tired, and nobody trusts anybody. It's a very famous line from this movie that now on social media you see people using in reference to. The government yeah. in the United States. People just have that gif of Kurt Russell sitting there. Nobody trusts anyone and we're all really tired. Like that should tell you everything you need to know about like how this movie has like circled around and become relevant again. Yeah. But despite all of that, totally or whatever, um, it's insane to me that like a critic, somebody, you know, like I may disagree with like almost everything that uh, Roger Ebert has to say. He's he was a pretentious uh, blowhard, and I didn't care for his taste in movies. But a lot of other people. Did. But a, a lot of other people did, and but for him to look at this, and just be like, it's a barf bag movie. What a pathetic dumbing down of this wonderful fucking film. Especially when, you know, pluck somebody from a different alternate earth, sit them down, and put the thing on within. Three minutes. It's compelling. You're entranced. You want to know more. Oh my god! I it's mean, so good. if you understand Norwegian, you're definitely in this because you know right off that that's not a dog. That's some kind of thing. Yes. Oh. I, that's what I do. Love the internet for this. Oh yeah, feeding I, us these little tidbits. It's so funny that you said that because when I remember looking that up, I was like, "What is that guy saying?" Look it up. I was like, "Internet has that." All translated and ready to go. Don't you worry about it. Um, here's a perfect example. I showed this movie because one of my favorite things to do in life is to show people horror movies that are message movies. Seminal big horror movies that I know a lot of people miss because people just say, well, I don't like horror movies, so I don't watch them. I was like, mm, let's try that again. Let's see you watch the right ones and we'll see if you don't like horror movies. Or movies that transcend genre. Exactly, which I which I argue this film definitely does. So I sit one of my best friends down with this and he's a very discerning film fan and and I did that whole spiel that I just gave to you guys um, and Lydia for the upteenth time um, about how this movie bombed, how it almost ended John Carpenter's career, this, that, and the other thing. Halfway through the movie... I get the response I'm looking for. He's like, so this movie bombed, you said? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, I don't understand how this movie bombed. He was like, and he told me, he's like, listen, Wes, you've shown me over the years, you've shown me a lot of films that are not my thing. But he's like, this is, 
this is a really good movie. And he even said after we were done watching, he's like, yeah, I'm going to go pick up that new Screen Factory steelbook when it comes out. Oh, yeah. It's definitely worth it. It's worth it, especially if the effects didn't turn him off. Because I wouldn't agree it's a barf bag movie. Yes, the dogs scared the shit out of me when I was a kid. The fucking shit out of me. And I'm so glad that it was so dark on a little tiny, maybe 11-inch TV, maybe black and white. Who fucking knows? I watched it when I was very young on a crappy TV in a a very worn-out VHS. I think that this movie's effects um, really get under a lot of people's skin. Pardon that pun. But um, I think that what they tapped into was everyone who was afraid of a house centipede skidding across your fucking floor, everyone that's afraid of unnatural, whippy sea creatures, like anyone, if you have a phobia of any sort of insect or arachnid or any sort of water uh, aquatic life, if you don't like reptiles, if you don't like slimy things, like they tap into every unnatural movement you can find in nature in these borderline Lovecraftian fucking monstrosities that are on the screen. And that opening dog sequence, not opening dog sequence, but that dog sequence still fucking grosses me out. Like, like when all those whips come out, I'm just like, Ugh, that is fucking gross. Yeah, like, yeah is- they really did good. They really did good. And you can show that in the silhouette and it'll still freak you out, let alone in the wonderfully restored and recolored version. Oh, I'm excited. I'm fucking super excited. I will say for my friend when he was watching it with me, he was like, uh, we were, we were eating, um, like pasta or something like that. And he was like, oh, maybe eating while I was watching this movie was that he does get queasy. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. So he was, yeah, I, I was, he was like, oh, maybe eating wasn't, uh, that great of an idea. It was right after the dog sequence. And then it was the, the surgery where they're like cutting open and like, taking organs out and like all this kind of shit like it's pretty graphic sequence too it truly but fuck all that we've been talking for like 30 minutes what's this movie even about anyways lydia this movie is about that's not a dog that's some kind of thing um this is a wonderful study on isolation and it's a wonderful study on not dabbling with the unknown but just our human inquisitiveness and our scientific nature our need to know and our drive to explore really gets us in a lot of fucking trouble sometimes i mean kind of like the past couple years paying attention to what they're doing with the cern reactor and uh there's some more thinking on cern and how badly we're fucking things up and they had some like little kid talking about how we're in an alternate reality now thanks to cern but that's the sort of thing that we're doing we're fucking with shit it's not bad i i fully behind scientific exploration but when you find something like a spaceship maybe you should call other people to help (sighs) norway norway yeah you don't want they want to get that nobel prize um yeah from the opening sequence of this film when you have well first of all you see a, a fucking straight up ufo and what i love about this spaceship is like john carpenter is like no we're doing like earth versus the flying saucers type like yeah wobbling in space disc like it's not like it's not like oh we we need to come up with like a modern design i'm like no 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 we're taking like ray harryhausen design no, and, and honestly i would love to see that cut 
really yeah just started in the snow just started in the snow. I, like I, I you know what i'm gonna agree with you on this one because i think that the opening sequence um where you have helicopter and you have a guy shooting at a dog and i can tell you from I, i'm gonna probably reference watching this with my friend a couple of times throughout this episode because it was a really i love the reason why i like watching movies with people for the first time it's because let's if i sit down and watch the thing with you i know you've seen this movie 50 fucking times yeah and same thing with like if i were to like every movie that we watch together we know that we've mostly seen at least once before usually yeah without with some exceptions of course yeah when it's those special times when you're like (laughs) we've you've never seen this we need to do this for the show oh my god yeah yeah so there's definitely films like that uh which i love to do but when we tackle these biggies like and so i feel that the true effect is effectiveness of certain scenes is lost on us because we're already in the bag. You know what I'm saying? Like we're already, we're waiting for this dog to split open like a flower yeah. with tentacles in it. So when we watched this fucking sequence, my friend was already full of questions. He, like this scene had his fucking attention. Like, what are they doing? No, like, your very first thought is probably something along the lines of, is this how they pass time in the Antarctic? Yeah, like, look at these sick fucks. Who would do this to a dog? Yeah. Like, this poor dog running in the snow up to its fucking stomach while these guys chase it in a helicopter and try to shoot it. Like, that's what you think is happening. Like, they're just, like you said, killing time, shooting dogs. Being assholes. Um, Is this what they do for kicks up there? Or you look at it from a filmmaker perspective, like me and Chris sitting there, and he's like, you know that dog is having the most fun day ever. I get to run through the snow for hours. Awesome. Because it does look pretty stoked. It's wagging its tail and stuff. But, yeah, taking it back into, like, we're suspending disbelief and we don't know what's going on. Yeah, you assume you hate the Norwegians. Right away. When they land, get to, uh, was it Fort 31? All of a sudden, we have guns aimed, screaming in Norwegian. Thanks to the internet, we know what he's saying. But for years, nobody did. Nobody did. That's on a dog. It's some kind of thing. Get away from it, you idiots. And in one of these like hilarious bits of circumstance... He fucks up throwing a grenade. His friend tries to get it. I'm like, what are you trying to do, man? You're like brushing snow away while a live grenade just got thrown? Run, yeah. dude. I was like... How much time do you think you have? Yeah, I know. I was like, you have like two seconds, three seconds? Anyway, he fucking dies. And then that other dude just gets shot in the mush. Right in the eye. Yeah, right in the eye. And then that's kind of... All she wrote, I guess, like, they don't really know what happened, but they're going to go to the neighboring Norwegian base just to uh, check it out. That's where we get Mac Ready. McCready. No, no, no. Mac Ready is a man of action. Yeah, he's a man. Well, no, he's a man of drinking whiskey alone and playing computer chess in his cabin because he doesn't want to interact with these fucking goons. Mac Ready. Okay, Mac Ready. Yeah, Kurt Russell, somebody who John Carpenter adores working with. There's a couple of uh, John Carpenter mainstays. Keith David's also in this flick. Um, you know, Keith David very famously go on to do They Live. Yeah. Um, and Kurt Russell's fucking Kurt Russell. Like he, he did like all the Escape from New York movies with. Uh, okay, John. he is a man of action. Yeah, and he's a man of action films. So yes. it's helpful as a visual cue here. Now that we know. Yeah, and I liked it. Like I, I felt like um, 
when I was coming over here today, I was like, you know, I was like, got a little bit of snow in my beard, got a big heavy jacket on. I'm like walking. I'm like, yeah, I could be in the thing. Like, it's kind of accurate. It's a different kind of cold. Seriously. Maybe. A lot of it was filmed in Juneau, Alaska. Like, you always go to Alaska if you like earthquakes and moose. But... (sighs) Yeah, that was uh, a lot of it was filmed on a soundstage. People had said it was filmed in Antarctica entirely, which isn't true. There was some landscapes and establishing shots. Yes, there were things built in Alaska or in the Antarctic for this film, but it was not entirely filmed there. It was filmed in uh, British Columbia as well. I couldn't imagine bringing all those actors to fucking Antarctica, like how expensive that would be. Oh, exactly. And I mean, how long of a shoot would it be? I wouldn't want to spend more than 10 minutes in the Antarctic myself, but I can't regulate my temperature. Yeah. So I would hate it for all different reasons, but it is fucking frigid. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a desolate wasteland that is not meant to support human life. Like, yeah. we're not supposed to be there. Exactly. They do a really good job of making us believe that. And I found the same with Last Winter. Mm. And there's a lot of parallels, of course, between those two films. And it's a lot of when we talked about the thing a lot when we did The Last Winter. But they really capture that isolation, the threat of the environment, and what it can do to people's minds because they're already at each other's throats. So the doctor and McCready go to check out the Norwegian base because they just want to know what the fuck is going on, where they come from, are other people there, are other people aware that their two goons had been chasing a sled dog into their camp trying to shoot it, and now they're dead. <laughs> and they don't have a helicopter anymore. I love this sequence so much. I love go into like a scene where something happened like you're looking around and the the halls are burned it's and, like the nostromo oh, right yeah. it's exactly that and and you're like what happened here what happened here there's that the fucking frozen guy that has slit his wrists and the the blood has frozen such a fucking good sequence and it's like every room tells a story every room tells a story and like how did that happen we get some answers later not from the papers that they salvage from this uh from the things that they see and the footage that they have because they take some vhs tapes or what have you from this site to try and figure out what the fuck did happen here but we also as a viewer get to see a little bit of what happens at the americans camp and eventually, the two don't look all dissimilar. Yeah. Yeah. Really. And so you can imagine that, like, genuinely speaking, if you have two groups of people, Norwegian or American, if the same type of thing, like there's an infiltration, there is a realization, um, and then, like, people turn on each other. And again, like, it is, this is the end result. The end result is everyone from that Norwegian camp is dead. And the thing's still there. Meanwhile, as they're checking all this kind of stuff, that dog is just hanging out. Yeah, it's hanging out under the table being a dog. And, like, as much as I do hold high reverence for this movie, and it does, you know, it's not like watching it the first time every time because I know what's coming. But it is like watching it the first time every time in that I simply watch the film. I usually don't chit-chat too much through it because I do enjoy it so very much. And there's always something new to see. There really is, especially not just because it's like this new version and all that. Every time I watch the thing, I'm looking for more little details. I do spend the first maybe 20 minutes of the movie going, puppy, oh puppy, because it's a fucking cute husky dog, right? But he is 
just assimilated into the camp. He's not kenneled right away with the other dogs. That's where they put the sled dogs. Sled dogs are in a kennel. Sled dogs are working dogs, by and large, and they're not treated like pets. But this dog just kind of kind of hangs out for a little bit as a pet for a little tiny bit. Yeah, yeah. there's a guy, by the way, that like seems to like look after the dogs, mm-hmm. but, like the dog handler. That's Clark. That's where we get our first hint of that noir mystery feel when the dog goes into Clark's room and we see in silhouette him turning to see the dog that has just walked in his room. And that's all we get. But it is very, it's straight out of a whodunit. It's straight out of Clue. We don't might not catch it, especially if, as a first-time viewer, that there's something, well, we know there's something more to this dog, but that there's something unbelievably insidious about this silhouette moment. Mm-hmm. The dog seems to move, and I don't know if it's just me projecting this onto the dog, but it seems like beforehand when we're seeing the dog run through the snow, it's it's a dog running through the snow. And when you see the dog come to the humans, it jumps up onto them. And then when you see the dog in the rec room, and he's just a fucking dog. There doesn't seem like I would look at that dog and be like, yeah, it's a dog. I don't know. I'm not really looking at it. But there is something about the way that the dog is moving in the hallway that seems far more intelligent far more like you said insidious it's determined insidious it's making almost a furtive motion like it doesn't want to see other it doesn't want to have other people see it go in there and it wants to catch him alone Mm -hmm. which is a crazy fucking thought speaking dogs right we're speaking of dogs here (laughs) dogs don't think like that Mm -hmm. but we know this is not a dog we don't and eventually you know, the dog just starts uh, causing trouble. I guess is the simplest way to say it. So, well, it gets put in the kennel. It gets put in the kennel. By the way, like, I love that, like, from the get-go. Clark is basically, like, this big, burly, super beard man. They have that guy talking like a replicant from, like, the moment... He, he's just very soft-spoken and very... Like, there's no emotion in his voice. Even when things are tense he always has this flat monotone delivery and so i was like they just they, like they want you to think that this guy is fucking part of this uh infiltration but when we get to this sequence now mind you nothing in the film that has happened thus far has been particularly violent now we have seen a guy get shot in the eye but it is not it's not gushy. You see more violent things than any sort of gangster or war movie or whatever. No, exactly. This shot in the eye is all straight out of a Western. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this dog sits there in the kennel, and the other dogs don't seem to pay it much mind, but then they all seem to pay it much mind. And then this dog, what do you say? Its head splits open like a fucking flower. And basically, and, and <clears throat> the tentacles and tendrils snake out and oh start strangling the other dogs. and it Makes this god-awful noise. I hate the noise that these fucking things make. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just so gross to me. Like, um, there was a movie that I had watched a little while ago called Annihilation with Natalie Portman. And there's like this zombified inside out mutated bear and when it roared it sounded like a fucking child dying like and i was like i hate this bear yeah like like, and so this is the same kind of effect for me where i'm watching this and it's just making this hollowed out it is extremely gory it is defying nature it is you know sounding ungodly 
and it's attacking other dogs. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. There's people that don't like dogs. Sure. There might be people cheering this on, but that's rare. That's very rare. Yeah. So it's because hitting a lot of buttons that gets the fire hose. Off. Like the, the hose in the face is, um, that scares the hell out of me. Even now I hate watching that for some reason. It's just gross. Yeah. It's like, it's like this thing just throwing its DNA around. Now to, let's be really clear with people. Um, at the time in 1982 when this thing came out, um, you didn't see special effects like this. Yeah. Half the time, people watching this would not understand what the fuck they're looking at. Or it would look so mm-hmm. unbelievably fake that we're not even into this uncanny apparatus. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, you know, we know that it's an apparatus. We know that it's a special effect. We know it's rubber. We know it's a guy in a suit. Mm-hmm. This just blew all that out of the water Mm -hmm. particularly those whippy tendrils like they're so effective and gross i just hate it i just like i just like it is just such an uncomfortable i don't want to be within a hundred fucking meters of that thing and it's and it's and and, 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 like that's a magic trick where you can make something you know we've talked about the monster problem the monster problem obviously for those who aren't familiar is you build up a monster throughout an entire film, and then when you finally see it, you go, no. Oh. The thing you were thinking of, that it was far scarier. Yeah, it doesn't right? push enough buttons. Exactly. Very few films who that are monster-based don't have a monster problem, because, frankly speaking, filmmakers try their best, but you can never really do what people can do with their imaginations. This nails it. This fucking nails it, because my brain would never come up with that. <laughs> Never come up with that in a movie. And it years. gets better, Wes, because these are just the dogs. These are just the fucking dogs. When this is such Clark's reaction to this is so great, I think, too, because it's so like I don't know what's happening. Yeah. I don't know what to make of this. And if I were to encounter like an inside out tendril whipping thing just attacking all these other dogs and not only attacking them it's starting to absorb them how can you comprehend what the fuck is this thing even doing it's not behaving like any animal that we've ever seen before it doesn't look like it's eating them what is it doing it's behaving more like a metal when you think about it yeah yeah like an anemone or something like that or like, or like a something microscopic like it seems to be like bonding and merging and and then also it's erupting in more parts. Like what's- And one escapes. But how do you stop this? Fire, Wes. We need fire and we need fire now. Got any fire? It's great that they just have a fucking flamethrower. What do you think that's for? Everything? <laughs> what the fuck do you think it's not for? I mean, if I was in the Antarctic, I would need a flamethrower. Basically, I would have you strapped up with a flamethrower and just flamethrowing constantly. I'd have you hooked up to a tanker truck so that you could keep me warm, Wes, because I cannot handle that kind of cold. Uh, You need it for all kinds of stuff. You got a frozen pipe, you know. Um, We often would rent a tiger torch, which is a very small flamethrower. If something froze outside, like underground, you need to get at some piping and stuff like that. You have to defrost the ground, and there's no better way to do it, like... A hairdryer is not going to cut it. If you've got frozen metal, just give it a little little tickle with the flamethrower, tiger torch. They have a nice big, full, probably a diesel or something, tiger torch. If it, if it doesn't use naphthalene or something like that, or if it's a kerosene, they seem to have a lot of kerosene. 
Yeah, yeah, they really like, do. And I lot. think I think the. Um, but they, yeah, they de- just use it for everything around the camp if they need to defrost something right away. And they're like doing a geological survey, so yeah. they need to get it the dirt sometimes or make sure metal on uh, metal will work. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, Childs is our fucking flamethrower man, Keith David. Um, he's got the voice that I'm kind of rocking right now these days. Yeah, but um, burn it all. Burn it all, and snow covers all. Snow hides all of our secrets and mysteries. They seem to be really used to attacking things with a flamethrower because they're all at the ready with fire extinguishers. And we get to see that play out a couple times, them flamethrowing something, and then two guys at the ready right there with uh, fire extinguishers to put stuff out. I think it must be like they have like trained fire procedures. like yeah. Because, I mean, yeah, they want this thing to burn. But I keep thinking, it's like, let it burn, keep Keep the flame keep, on it. Keep yeah, the flame okay. on it. Let it fucking burn. But they can't afford to let the facility burn down, I guess, which, you know, makes a lot of sense. They don't realize how fucked they are right now. By the way, when they went off to the Norwegian base, they brought back a twisted, malformed lump of flesh. Well, that's a nice gift. Isn't it? No. That, nothing says holidays like a twisted, malformed lump of flesh. True. It's got like... Mouth over here, another part of a mouth over there. That looks like it might be an eye. But inside, crisp, clean human organs. Yeah. Now they know, thanks to the to the dags, and thanks to this twisted malformed lump of flesh, and their doctor, who's really a freaky guy, really escalates his uh, temperament quickly. I was going to say kind of fast, but I'm like, I don't want them to like, because I'd be like, what are they? What is the reference point to any of this? Where they would draw the conclusion that what this is is some kind of an alien organism that is duplicating, uh, perfectly, mind you, the uh, organic tissue of whatever it touches. So we caught the dogs in mid transformation. This frozen, burnt up body that we found in the Norwegian base is was the result of that trying yeah, to mimic much a human the exact same point at which it was stopped but it's dead now and the dogs are dead now and uh some of the other dogs um are didn't have to get burned so that's all fine um and i guess they just have to prep and you know hold off and uh you know they'll get their nobel prize when they figure out this is an alien. By the way, they know this is an alien because they looked at some old footage. Yeah, some old footage. Not like I subjected Wes to earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we got I mean, to watch some eight millimeter film from your childhood. Yeah, it was really, it was really great and beyond. Like some of those tapes are older than me, um, so it was nice to see some real grain and scratches. Some yeah, organic grain and scratches. They have salvaged these tapes that were taken. You know, of normal stuff like, oh, this is our test pit here. This is this test site here. And here's a record of this on video. You take record. I used to take records, um, photographic records of things up at the Air Force Base in North Mm. Bay when they're like, oh, we painted that door red. You better go take a picture of it Mm. just because they do that. Um, 
But yeah, when you find a UFO, you definitely pull out the camcorder. And they do find the UFO. Now, this is a scene that actually mirrors the scene from Howard Hawks, The Thing. That everybody standing in a big circle. Now, in the Howard Hawks, The Thing, they spend more time on this scene. Mm -hmm. This is really just watching grainy footage. And you have uh, McGreedy and them wanting to go and check out this site to determine what the Norwegians actually found they had found what i call the glacial bathtub because at the camp they did have this huge chunk of ice which it obviously had uh, airlifted out a huge chunk of ice that had something in it they had defrosted whatever that something was we now know it was our alien friend and when they do visit this site they find the ship and they find a trail in the snow to the spot where they had taken out the glacial bathtub and that had been what contained this creature. So we could surmise, with very little time spent on it actually, that something had crashed. The surviving being, whatever it was, had crawled its way out into the snow and frozen. How long ago? A hundred thousand years ago. Oh, it's like a no. hundred years ago? Yeah, that makes sense. Hundred thousand years. A thousand years ago. That's a long time. One hundred thousand of those years. <laughs> One hundred what? One hundred thousand what? Dollars for the excavation? Well, I thought it would cost more than that, even in the eighties. One hundred thousand years, Lydia. One hundred thousand. I can't conceive of that. I cannot conceive of that. It's fucking buck wild. Yeah. Um, it's almost like. It's a throwaway line, and I don't. Yeah. Mean, I don't mean to bring this back to like Transformers. But one of the things that people forget about Transformers, the cartoon, was those motherfuckers crashed on Earth four million years ago. And that means that... And, and by the way, on Cybertron, Megatron left Shockwave in charge of Cybertron and said, we'll be right back. For four million years, they got no contact on Cybertron. And then Megatron, when they all come to life... Four million years later on Earth, in, in modern Earth of 1982 or whatever, Megatron just contacts Shockwave and he's like, Oh, mighty Megatron, I'm glad that you're okay. Four million years these fucking robots were in a volcano, Lydia. <laughs> That's boring. That's buck wild to me. Anyway, this is the same thing. I'm lucky that this alien was in stasis for almost all of that because he didn't like hang out in a volcano for a hundred thousand years. But yeah. you know, it's geologically sound. What they have to say makes sense. If you ever seen a core sample, they go down that far and they're like, "Yeah, this ice is a hundred thousand years old," and it is like a throwaway line too. But it sticks. It sticks. It really does. Well, they're fucked because. They've postulated that this thing can mimic humans. And how long was Clark alone with that dog? Hour, hour and a half? Doesn't matter. How long does it take? All it needs is for someone to be alone. It can happen in the blink of an eye. And Howard Hawk's a thing. They're just like, we can do this, guys. We can band together and we can stop this thing together. This movie, first things first, Blair has run a scenario. He has taken the research that he knows. He knows that this is an alien invasive species because of... He fed it through his Pong game. <laughs> and he rewired Pong to somehow be an electron microscope display. 
that's basically what it looks like to me. Yeah, it, it doesn't it's help. It's it yeah. is like it it, it the the uh, the tech in this movie is funny because it seems so both futuristic because I'm like, could computers do that in those days? And also primitive because like watching McGreedy play chess and and like then just like pour his fucking scotch into the into this fucking monitor. Then he calls a cheating bitch. Yeah, that's how he treats technology. But Blair, on the other hand, has an electron microscope. And he's been studying this thing on a molecular level and seeing what it's doing. And it's behaving not unlike the AIDS virus. He has a chilling calculation. And it's almost like the scene from Alien where um, Kane is talking to Mother and shit like that. But here we have the prognosis of 27,000 hours upon first contact in a populated area, less than four years, the entire Earth's population destroyed. Chilling. Unstoppable. Un-fucking-stoppable. This leads to probably one of my favorite sequences in this entire movie, Blair smashing um, the radio uh, transmitter room that they have. That um, window is the dude that's in that's like the scruffy yeah windows is basically radar from mash yeah he's radar from mash he looks like hide from that 70s show to me he does a lot um so hey this is um blair reaching fuck this shit o'clock oh yeah he kills the remaining husky dogs he destroys the helicopter their snow cats um and their radio communications and he is literally firing his gun like a madman at anything that moves. Yeah. At, while ranting and raving like a lunatic with an axe and like not... But it's, it's fucking great. I love this sequence. It is fucking great. And this is also... I mean, I guess it would be a red herring to a certain point. Because if you're not going to believe that uh, a scientific mind can reach fuck the shit o'clock... And decide, we're going to shut this down. I'm going to shut us off. I'm going to try and contain this, I guess, to the best of my ability. But I'm also giving up. So if I'm going to take myself, I'm going to take you with me sort of thing. Like, I don't know if we can stop this, but I'm going to give it a shot with all I know how to do, which is rant, rave, cut us off, shut us down, start killing everything. That's all he can think of to do. And he's also grappling with his own existence. And his humanity during all of this. So it is a mad-making scene. Or you can look at it the other hand like, oh, well, he must be infected. And trying to make sure that they can't escape. But, as they'll rightfully point out, this thing would want to escape. Because it can't survive in the cold any better than a fucking human can. Its only benefit is that it seems to be able to go into a dormant state for thousands of years yeah. and and thought out almost like a like a old bacteria or space food space food yeah it's freeze-dried ice cream is what the thing really is it is it is i saw some freeze-dried ice cream the other day and very excited about that myself you're adorable but that's uh, yeah, the story remains to be told freeze-dried ice cream but it could just leapfrog from person to person. It's not impossible where they are. If there's another camp, um, like what, an hour's drive away. Mm. There's civilization, probably three hours drive away. And 100,000 years 
what's six more months? Yeah. Six more months till it warms up a little bit. Winter <clears throat> just started. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a really great line that Childs gives when they, they cart Blair to his little, what will be his little isolation shack. There's another funny scene with him later uh, where I'm 100% convinced, like, oh, yeah, he's an alien at this point. Um, but Childs delivers this line. He's like, if I was a duplicate, if I had been taken over or a copy of my original self, how could any of you tell? And that is the question, really the question, because when we see the first human really know for a hundred percent that this is a an copy, alien, an, yeah. a, 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 an alien, there is no doubt that it is that is what it is. It doesn't make any fucking noise that a human makes. Its hands look like very old bits of lasagna. Um, so we know, um, so we would think, oh, it would be pretty obvious. Like, at least it'd be acting weird. This thing's not even acting like a fucking normal person. But then we, we will learn that this is incredibly sinister. It can not only mimic human voice, but it seems to be able to not just duplicate our physiology, but our memories, our memories of people. It seems to have all of the reactions and emotions that the person would have had in life. The only hint that we have is that it seems to need you to get naked or something. I don't know if you hulk out when it takes you over or what, but your clothes will be nearby. Yeah, because what well, we saw the the first guy when Window is alone with um Bennings. Yeah. And he comes back into the room and we see that he's basically been stripped naked and it's just covered in tentacles and shit like that. And by the way, this is from the body that they found at the Norwegian base. So this thing isn't fucking dead. This comes to one of the best sequences in the film. I'm going to say this like 100,000 times, by the way. Every best. sequence is the best sequence in the film. This sequence in which they burn him, like like McGreedy knocks over that big thing of kerosene, and they're all standing around him, and he's making that noise, and his hands look like old spaghetti. Like, it's fucking great it is fucking great it's and it's so unnerving and by the way this is not like what have we become this is really early in the movie still it is really early in the movie and it seems to be just damage control and are we doing enough that's that's more of the sentiment i get from this and on top of that it's shot beautifully Mm. i mean i do love the setting of this as much as i hate the cold i do love the bleak setting of this but to have the, the visual excitement of fire, a guy on fire. That's a, a nice stark contrast, and it's just shot really well in that sort of existing light. Mm. I like this a lot. Me too. It's it's equal parts horrific, sad, and uh, haunting. Even Gary coming up to them afterwards and saying, like, I've known him for 10 years. Like, just really wrestling with this idea. Meanwhile... Like, uh, McReady is, like, just... That's where he's delivering is, like, we're, nobody trusts anybody. We're all really tired. Mm-hmm. And and um, and it's funny how everyone really kind of immediately goes towards Kurt Russell's character as, like, a guy who's 
in charge. Like, Which is crazy to me because he never really stands up for that. They never really go seeking a leader necessarily. They seem to be a fairly, fairly loose affiliation where Gary's their boss-ish guy in mm-hmm. charge. But it's more of he's the liaison. Um, yeah. They've never been really... Um, polarized by leadership and they're looking to McGrady who doesn't seem to want to have anyone follow him. He doesn't want to be a member of a club, so to speak. He has been like, he isolates himself further from them at every chance he gets. He doesn't complete. And I'm usually not a stickler for the hero's journey, especially in literature because I balk at it myself, Mm. but he's a really good example of an anti-hero given the circumstances, mm-hmm. who does not follow any sort of cyclical journey. He does not, you know, return from whence he came as stronger, better, having learned a lesson and mm-hmm. made friends and enemies and blah, blah, blah. John Carpenter is really known for doing characters like that. Kurt Russell has played a couple of them yeah. for John Carpenter. Snake Plissken starts the movie as Snake, and he ends the movie as Snake. Um, Roddy Pipe McCready. Roddy Piper in They Live. Yeah. He starts and ends the movie the exact same he way. He learned some stuff along the way, but yeah. does it change him in his heart of hearts? No. Yeah. Even even uh, Kurt Russell, when he was playing uh, the main character in Once Upon a Time in Chinatown, he's just a good guy. He's a good guy from the start. It's not even like... Um, there's a scene in that film that I love talking about where um, instantaneously after his friend... Who's only loosely friends with his girl, her, his girlfriend gets kidnapped at the airport when he's coming to pick her up. He, he, he like, he's in the midst of trying to ask Kurt Russell's character for help and Kurt Russell cuts him off and is just like, well, where is she? Like, and I was like, oh, that's a hero, man. He just wants to help. I love people like that. But no, in this, you're absolutely right. He, he just wants to drink in his shack. Like, that's his whole thing. Wait for winter to be over. Yeah. Get this shit done. Yeah, that's all he wants to do. Wear his cowboy hat. He's the he's the helicopter pilot. So he actually has a lot of autonomy with the rest of the people because even if let's say Gary or somebody gave him a direct order, he has the right to veto any travel in and out of that base camp because it's his discretion. If he had a helicopter, that is. At this point, all of his power is stripped away entirely because he doesn't even have a helicopter. You know, <clears throat> He could be the king of walking out of there if he wanted to be. Well, he's got the cowboy hat. Yeah, it's more like what Chris referred to it as a mini sombrero. Well, okay, I'll give you that. Yeah, he, he's, it's quite the hat. It's quite the hat, but like to me, he's like still it's like, I'm the wandering hero. Reluctant. I suppose he still has that aura, even though we know that he has no helicopter. And he can't wander anywhere. The other helicopter, well, but it blew up. So it blew up. Um, Blair basically sabotaged the other one. Um, they look to him as the hero because he's as soft spoken as Clark had been. He is as good of a gunsmith as Gary is. And also, really no nonsense. Like Childs. Childs, um, Keith David in this film plays a really interesting character who people trust but are kind of afraid of because he's got this really hard-ass temper Yeah, where he is like, he is not a man to be fucked with. He, he, he's not impressed by you putting a gun in his face. He's not impressed with um, any type of authority. He is basically like, I'm, I know I'm me. And that's all that I can stand. Now, they have this plan, and it's not a bad plan. 
if they were to run blood tests with the blood that they have on hand. No, they have blood on hand, obviously, because if there's an emergency up there, it would fucking pay to have. So I'm, I'm guessing that if you go and work up on that base, you're going to have to have blood drawn either when you get there or maybe even beforehand. Yeah. In case you need transfusions. Yeah, exactly. It's like, exactly. Um, so we can do a blood test with everyone's blood that's on hand and see if there's any type of reaction. No problem. One problem. The fridge has been sabotaged. All of the blood is leaking out. And it's not the 30 Days of Night Skies either that came and sabotaged this. No. No, it's not the 30 Days of Night Guys. And here's the kicker. There's one key to that locker. And there's only one person that ever has access to open that locker. And that is Dr. Copper. And only if Gary gives him the key. So two. there's one key. Two people would ever have access to it. Kind of suspicious. Kind of fucking suspicious. This is a really good fucking sequence. I love when they're just arguing with each other. Some people trying to come to other people's defenses. Other people who now when you watch this movie a couple of times and you know who actually is an alien, it's really interesting to see like how people who are aliens are reacting to this fucking Situation. And you take aliens out of it entirely. This is how people in a locked room, escape room situation will will eventually behave. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not exactly, I wouldn't want to say it's textbook, and it's not that every group would behave like this. And there's a lot of people saying that, well, I would do this, like you do with every fucking horror movie. Um, but it's a really good representation of how you could take a best guess at how these people would react. Given this sort of mystery. It's another mystery, Wes. It is a mystery. Um because all of the evidence is piling up to point the fingers at the two most in authority, the doctor and the actual person who's in charge of the base. And even more like like Gary, because like you were saying how they have Clark behaving like an automaton from the get-go. Yeah. They have Gary. You start to think, like, is this why he's so indecisive and so blank? So indecisive, so blank. And if the dog had enough time, let's assume I'm not entirely sure what type of intelligence this alien has. I mean, listen, it can build things. So well, yeah, but according to McReady, which is awesome when it gets building like crazy maker style. Yeah, it's, it's hilarious actually. It's like scavenging stuff. I love that. Um, when McReady proposes the blood tests. It's all about survival. That's all it wants to do is survive. It's going to retaliate. It's going to react in pain. Every single bit of it is an organism. Mm. So that is why the blood idea will work. It was all just survival. So I wouldn't even say that it's necessarily intelligence. Like, is fire intelligent because it seeks burnable items? True. But what I'm what I'm getting at is, like, is the dog, if the dog was intelligent, let's assume that it was. Um, and if I'm in this situation, I don't know how smart this alien is. I know that it has interstellar travel, so it's smart enough. If that's affected by what it's absorbing, who knows? Yeah. But let's just assume it has a base level intelligence equal to or greater than mine. How long would it take the dog to figure out who's in charge? What would be the most logical thing 
or person for it to duplicate probably the person at the top just going from like yeah tribe mentality it would take a normal dog about 10 minutes to figure out who the boss is by scent and by the tone of voice around it and yeah. the way people look at these other creatures and body language so an alien being and it depends on its motivations too is it motivation just to survive don't go for the guy at the top go for the weakest guy the guy at the back of the pack the elderly Something like that if you just want to survive. Yeah. Or if you're like calculating your four-year timeline to destroy the entire planet, then who do you go for? Depends on how intelligent this thing is. Yes. Um, I would almost argue that like I'm wondering if it's intelligence. Like let's say it's duplicating a dog. Does it have a higher intelligence than a dog more based off of instinct? But then if it duplicates a human, does it have a human's intelligence? Does it, like, wake up a little more? Yeah, wake up a little more. Like, how... Because, like, by the time it's duplicating humans, it's making things. Yeah. Now, maybe it's just needed opposable thumbs. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. But, um, but anyways, that long and short of it is, is right now we have literally no fucking idea who is human and who is not. Um, Kurt Russell's character, McCready, has a really good line. He's like, I know I'm human. If all of you were the alien, you would just attack me. So that means that some of you are also human. And we need to figure out who's who. And that's when they separate the people that they... Blair said, watch Clark. That's who, the per, that's who Blair was the most suspicious of. Yeah. So Clark, big stoic dude, put him in a corner... Now, like a hipster teddy bear, he looks like a craft brewery owner. He does, like Mill Street style. Yeah. Um, Then you have Gary, Dr. Copper. They had access to the blood. They go over there. And now it's like, can we figure out who the fuck is who before that's gone? But not before. We know that somebody else is is there because fucking Fuchs, they're going to find him burnt alive. Poor Fuchs. No one gives a fooks about him. No one gives a fook. <laughs> it's it's a nice way to dispose of that quite quickly. Was he a replicant? Was like like or did was he did he discover a replicant and get burned? Yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah. No one knows. No one knows anything, but they know that the shit is falling apart. Like people are dropping. And it doesn't help that there's a lot of suspicion on McReady right now because they find his torn clothes. And that's what Fuchs originally saw. So we as the audience even think, oh, is Kurt Russell fucking... Did he sneak off towards Fuchs, come back? Is he a double agent? Is he a thing? Yeah. And he goes over there with uh, Nalls to his shack because he's like, when I left my shack the other day, the lights were off. Now they're on. So let's go. Now all of a sudden... Nalls comes back by himself. So Fuchs is dead. Nalls comes back from himself. We don't know where McCready is. And everyone else is still in the rec room, like, pointing guns at each other. And Child's got a fucking flamethrower. No one's taking that from him. And so they've really done a cup and ball shit, like, where they're just twisting around. Like, people have been separated from each other for an extended period of time. There's evidence saying that certain people have access to the blood so they could be replicants but now these people over here we've lost track of where they are they've lost track of where they are it is cup and ball exactly that's the best analogy for this sequence yeah yeah and this really opens up to i love just like kurt russell sitting there with a stick of dynamite like he's fucking wily coyote just saying if like anyone anyone fucks with me anyone bothers me 
I'm taking you all down. Like, I'm going to just blow this whole place up. I'll warm it right up. Yeah, yeah. I'll warm it right the fuck up. Uh, well, bad news. One of them's going to get a heart attack. You know, the guy that looks like he might have a heart attack anyways. Kind of pudgy, kind of dopey looking. Which is a shame. It has it's a lot of stress. You can understand that. Sure, it's a lot of stress. <sighs> Old Norris. And the interesting thing about Norris is they briefly were going to consider making him in charge. But he declined. Yeah, he didn't want to have a firearm for one thing. Yeah. But, and he is like this older pudgy guy. So, of course, we, even after all of this displace of trust that we've been through, and the who we, if we're thinking in that direction, who we're sure is the alien, or if we're just letting it all unfold, this still comes as such a wonderful surprise. This is like one of the more gifable moments in this film. Gifable. Um, um, it's. The reverse of a chestburster. Yeah. It's a reverse chestburster. It's like we got the reverse of the perfect organism here, too. We've got this just this devastatingly imperfect organism and the reverse chestburster. This is anti-alien. Yes. Mm -hmm. This is the anti-alien scene. It's fucking incredible. Not only does it look fantastic, but it just leads to one of the set piece incidents in this film that um, is going to be remembered for all time. And also leads into a really important plot point, because through this observation, we learn that this creature will attempt to uh, protect itself, even from a defibrillator. Mouth opens. It's like a Ghostbusters toy. It is like a Ghostbusters toy. (laughs) It's like vagina dentata happening on this guy's chest. Oh my God, Dr. Copper gets his fucking arms munched off. Dies of catastrophic arm failure. Meanwhile, Norris is just erupting into the, this fucking... It's weird. It's like a head that looks like him has sprung from the top, from the open mouth part. But he also has a head still attached to his body that's now pulling itself off as the... Because uh, they bring in the flamethrowers, go figure. Yeah. But they don't torch it long enough, and that was your point with the dogs, and that's my thought with the dogs, too, is torch it longer, torch it longer, why are you putting it out already? Let it fucking die. Yeah. Things don't die when they get warm. They die when they get burnt. you got to let it burn. Yeah. So they don't torch them long enough, and this head is, like, dripping off of the rest of the body. Yeah. Sprouts fucking spider legs, and- It has dog bits in it. It does have fucking it dog, dog bits, bits in it. so it's like definitely retains a memory of other thing that it's it must have assimilated a spider somewhere along the line, or maybe it's just yeah, it's like something like snail like. It's got those weird eyes or spider like. It, it it seems to be able to call upon whatever. A DNA sequence it needs to in that moment. We're also discounting that it has its own form somewhere. In that's that. that's so the thing. Could it look too. like those things? That's the thing. Oh, honey. exactly. But yeah, that or it is. It can call on things we know or remember or that we're afraid of. Or just like the um, the uh, I can't remember what it's called, but the the DNA that exists within our bodies that make our bodies take the shape that it takes. And every living thing that has genetics has a predetermined shape. This is how the cells will divide and this is how our bodies will form. That's how come insects only grow to a certain size, have six legs, arachnids have eight, we have two legs, we walk on two legs, etc. 
we, our spine is shaped a certain ways. Our eyes are situated in our heads in certain ways. This thing seems to be able to, I would almost wonder if it can just resituate its DNA almost from scratch. That, or I think, I tend to think that it needs to have had knowledge of these things. So having assimilated them before. Dogs have fleas. We have parasites inside of us. True. We have all kinds of crazy stuff in our eyelashes, let alone in our guts. Mm. Like the, the, the creatures, the fantastic creatures that it could have, even from a very, very small single cell creature level, it can get all these wonderful apparatus. True. And I also do like what you had said, that perhaps that somewhere along the line, alien or on Earth, this thing, like, okay, we now have Norris here as this fucking inside-out fucking tentacle dog thing. Run that back. Where was he then? Okay, it was a dog. Run that back. Where was it? Okay, it was it was that... It was the, a, a thing on... Another thing maybe in the Norwegian base that they took out of the ice. Run that back. Where did that? Where what? What had it absorbed up until that point? What was its shape? What, Maybe like, Norwegians have tentacles. We don't know. We don't know if the Norwegians have tentacles. They might. Um, if you're Norwegian and you have tentacles, let us know. Um, uh, yeah, but like it could be anything. And I think that like some of the my favorite thought exercises for John Carpenter's The Thing is trying to imagine. What what did it start as? Was it just genetic gelatinous soup that bonded with something else, took on that property, and then repeated? And, and so to say that it even has a true form might be even naive. Mm-hmm. It's very, very interesting. I love this alien. Like This is a very interesting creature. It is a very interesting creature. I'm lucky that we get to spend as much time with it as we have. And we better move it along because we've been spending a lot of time with it as it is. Right. When they burn this this spider head thing. That spurs one of my favorite lines of, you've got to be fucking kidding me. Because that would be the reaction I would have if I saw this thing crawling with my friend's head and spider legs and little crab eyes. Yeah. But it does something useful. It gives McReady an idea. An idea. An idea. Not we, just another chance to use a flamethrower. I mean, it is another chance to use the flamethrower, but it's in a very productive way. Tie everyone down and take everyone's blood. And since we can determine that this thing protects itself independently, every part is its whole creature, that means that the blood will protect itself independently. Um, and if it's human blood, it'll just burn. And so we go through the sequence, and we find out some good things. Well, first things first, uh, Clark will get shot in the fucking head. Yeah. Uh, but he doesn't transform. So we've lost a lot of people. And in this sequence, shit's going to go very tits up. Because like, it's crazy how, how things go so bad so fast. I just I like the humanity of this moment. I like the gravity of this moment. Mm-hmm. I like the, we're going to figure it out once and for all. You know, yeah. whichever one of you have the fucking black card, you're out. And I know I'm human, so psh, we've got this nice, like, hot wire burning into a petri dish of blood. Mm-hmm. It's a neat little kind of low-impact, high-impact thing. I like this. True. Narrowly. Windows is okay. 
Thank God. Thank God for our scruffy 70s show guy. Yeah. So, And I like I like the, the idea that it's like, you're all tied to the fucking couch. McGreedy tests himself so he knows he's okay. And then the second you're okay, it's like, all right, you can have a gun now. And like, you're standing next to me. Yeah. You're on my team now. Now, if we all duct tape ourselves back to back and just hold our guns out straight, we'll be fine. Um, or flamethrowers. True. Maybe. But yeah, as That's, soon as you're tested okay, it's basically like, okay, on timing. Yeah. And this is going to be the worst fucking like, luck for everybody because I feel so bad to everyone still tied to the couch when they fucking pin Palmer as the fucking guy because I can't imagine. Even, like, Gary, who I'm not a big fan of, I'm just like, oh, my God, he's, like, right next to that fucking thing. Now, if the, the alien was very, very intelligent, I'm sure the blood would have just been like, hey, excuse me, pardon me, I'm just going to crawl out of this disc now before you find out what I am. And they could be like, where'd the blood go? Who knows? Um, that's the cartoon version. True. Of the thing. Uh, the Nickelodeon version. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, this is explosive. Super explosive. Windows gets his head nommed off. Yeah. I feel bad about that. I like that fucking dude. But like I, I like how in in determining one guy was so two people that were already dead they determined were not like both Copper and uh Clark were not aliens when well, he did kill somebody. I like that like uh Childs is like, so you're a murderer. You literally just killed Clark and he was like a normal person. Um so there was the first red herring that we had. And I guess the second one was like copper. Because, like, we know copper now wasn't uh, a thing. So, the only red herring left is Gary. Be- and Basically. But, like, we know that that Palmer, who no one was really suspecting, um, was a thing. He's dead, but they also killed Windows, had to go burn Windows. And and so, then you're just with uh, Nalls and Childs and Gary. And guess what? Good news, guys. None of them are a thing. They win. It's kind of surprising because everyone's probably thinking Gary definitely is, just from the way he's acting. True. But that's just the way he acts, I guess. Yeah, we all act our certain ways under pressure. He acts very angry under pressure. So does Childs, to be fair. This is where we get to see what the thing's master plan was. Now, one of the sequences with Blair that I fucking love that we skipped over was him sitting there eating a stupid can of beans with like a noose. Yeah. Like right next to him. He's like, oh, I feel much better now. Yeah. I'm just like, this guy is 150% an alien right now. Like, there is no way that he is not a fucking alien. And they go to his shack that they've left him there for days. And um, well, he's not in it. And he's got himself a little tunnel, Hogan's Hero style. Hogan's Hero style. I like this. Or child style, because this reminds me of like a bored 10 year old on a weekend with dad. oh yeah that's a good point he's made himself another little flying saucer yeah out of scavenged helicopter parts and knickknacks and dibby-doos do you think that he wants to leave the planet or do you think he's just trying to get to a populated area i don't know if he's just on autopilot at this point i think it's a populated area it's enough to just get him to a populated area i really do i think it's all about survivability at this time and just assimilate i think he's like a little katamari a little living breathing katamari well don't you worry because they have a plan. Blow it all up. Fire. Yeah. yeah. Fire. <laughs> Just heat it up. Yep. It's fucked up how they are all resigned to like die. They're just like, well, there's no way out of this. So we're just going to burn this fucking place down. That's where Blair was before he was infected. That's True. exactly what his mind frame was. And now they just sort of joined him in that thinking. Yeah. It's very true. What could you do? You're hours away from any sort of help. You have absolutely no contact with the rest of mankind at all. 
Guaranteed. No, no one's going to come. No. Until spring, at least. Do you want to just it's, it's, it's die by giving in to it? Or try and stop it as best you can? It all means death. Things go pretty tits up again, because they have a, a fairly solid plan. They're going to... Just bomb every little sequence of the base. Yeah, and Molotov set it all cocktails, up. drums of kerosene. They got lots of kerosene. They can burn four bases if they need to. Both Nulls and Gary get taken out by Blair. I love the sequence where Blair puts his hand on Gary's face and like his fingers like sink Smush in. in. It's a pretty good little effect too. Very fairly simplistic physical mm-hmm. effect, but uh it's so very effective, especially since we know what this alien can do. It can do it that quickly. It can just meld into things it's like the Terminator. Yeah. Nals doesn't even really get a death scene, poor guy. Mm, doesn't need one. Doesn't need one. But I like that this final sequence when when McGreedy is like setting up his last charges and shit, he's gonna face off against the thing. And it's like the most anticlimactic but somehow perfect resolution to this well at least partial resolution to this, because this huge thing erupts from the ground and you can tell that this is an amalgam of like a couple of people this is bigger than we've ever seen this thing before and bursting from its chest is that fucking dog right that our favorite that yeah. fucking dog again and so it's like you you it all started from the dog you guys just didn't get one of them and there it is and and he just says yeah well fuck you too and just throws a stick of dynamite at it it's fucking great yeah it is fucking great. And it's not that anticlimactic because we well, get the monster that pushes all those buttons all over again, <clears throat> but in it, its mega Zord form. It is mega Zord form. Um, it's really cool. You can see an artistic rendering out on the Screen Factory uh, steelbook. Mm-hmm. But there's one more sequence because the entire base is on fire. It's burning. It's destroyed. Which we get the, that mirror from the Norwegian base. We've seen vehicles being drove through. We've seen people attacking doors with axes. We've, there's holes in walls. Everything's burnt. When things burn, water melts, freezes again because they were in the Antarctic. So pretty soon it's going to look like a new, whole new glacier all of its own, much like the Norwegian base looked like, especially with the amount of fire that they're going to be starting right now so we're saying like this is exactly what happened days before at the norwegian base holy shit so now there's two guys left in that helicopter that came chasing that dog two guys left now childs is still alive he's been missing for the last 15 20 minutes of the movie thought that he saw blair ran off the question is we know McGreedy is not an alien. We know what happens when people disappear, right? From one another and come back. Yeah. yeah we know, we have an idea of what happens, unfortunately. Um, I do like when he's coming back because he looks kind of like a grizzled mountain man. He can't tell if he's tired because he's just being freshly assimilated or is he tired because of what he says he's been doing. He got lost in the snow and here he is. And they just sit back, have a drink. And um, Kurt Russell says... You know, if there's if either one of us has any surprises for each other, I don't think we're in any shape to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. And says what should and child says what should we do now? And he's just like, why don't we just wait here for a while, see what happens, see what happens. And then the camera pans out. You are best case scenario, they're two humans and they're going to freeze to death. Worst case scenario, one of them freezes to death. 
and the other one goes dormant for another six months, 100 years until somebody comes across it and thaws it out again. Or best best case scenario, they're both human or whatever, and one freezes to death, the other eats his body and makes it out of there alive. <laughs> what do we got next for him? What do we have next for them? Coming up next, we have a Christmassy romp because we've sort of like bisected our Christmas ideas to bring us the thing because we're kind of in outer space. But we're going to suddenly crash land into Christmas, uh, like most of you are out there, I'm sure, with A Silent Night, Deadly Night. Oh, yeah. It's another Seasons Grievings edition. It is a Seasons Grievings edition. Before we head out, I want to just say a special... um, Note for Nelson W. Piles. He is the narrator of the Wicked Library. You might know him as the librarian. He's the voice of the librarian. He's an accomplished author as well. And my friend Nelson has a re-release of his book, Demons, Dolls, and Milkshakes. And we've seen a lot of this re-release action happening with things like Aaron Dry's The Lost Boys. Um, quite a few books, uh, Sephora Geron's books have almost all been re-released now after Dorchester. But this is one uh, Nelson wrote a couple years ago that I loved and I wanted it to have a bigger audience. And here we are with a new re-release. So go and check out Demons, Dolls, and Milkshakes. Yeah, that's awesome. You're definitely going to want to check that out. If you guys would also do me the pleasure, heading over to Webtoons, by this time you listen to this episode, the last chunk of story for Teresa where the darkness takes me will be released that means all 23 pages of the first official issue of Teresa is released you can read the entire story on webtoons um and great news because that just means the monday after that issue 2 Teresa the darkness lingers the second issue is going to be released and you guys can start enjoying that sweet looking forward to it it's getting a lot of popularity so i'm very very excited for you and along with you uh, to finally see this project hitting and hitting pretty well i really enjoy the reception yes i'm really enjoying the reception it's incredibly flattering both uh patreon has been incredibly generous um webtoons itself is a wonderful platform um and the subscriptions keep rising every day um it's just, it's really, really, I'm so happy that it, it the people are enjoying it. Like, yeah. I, cause I would, I would still make it even if it was floundering, but, um, it's, it's a hell of a lot more satisfying knowing that at the very least I had a feeling people would like it and they are. I like that your writing's out there again and on a platform that you have under your control, which is wonderful. And for Chris's artwork to be not just, contained as it had been for it to be out there free let loose upon the world and still under both of your control that's a pretty unique position for an artist to be in i like that mm-hmm, absolutely and in twenty-seven thousand hours we will encapsulate the globe with our sinewy tentacles blah, 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 blah. i'm west knight and i'm typical lydia and you've been listening to dead air